When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Sandy Garasino. Hello. Associate Editor for the National Observer. Good to have you back. Nice to be here, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Joining us from Vancouver. Sandy, we're going to talk about Kelly Leach's most recent work of uh, absurdist cinema. We are going to talk about uh, Kevin O'Leary talking on American Cable News. We're going to talk about Joseph Boyden again. Again. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's always fun. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Tanya Bergen, Britt Embry, Kathy Henwood, Shiona Burns, Remisa Hirji, Iliana, Ron Saunders, and Hillary Lawson. Hillary, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I think it's more important than ever in this current political climate to support independent media, and you're doing a great job of that. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hello, I'm Kelly Leach. And I'm running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Over the last several months, I've been traveling across the country, speaking to thousands of Canadians. Canadians are proud of their country, and they are proud of their unified Canadian identity. They are proud of shared values. Values like hard work, generosity, freedom, and tolerance. Now, I think that just listening to the audio of that... There's a little bit of strange pacing, but you may be inclined to just hear the words coming out of her mouth and engage with that video on the level of policy ideas and ideology. But that would really fail to convey what went viral this week when you actually see the video. I don't know, Sandy, would you hazard a description of that video for people who haven't seen it? Well, Kelly cleaned up pretty good there, or tried to, and and got herself into an office that looked like professional setting, and it's like she had to. She she knows she's got a, a you know appeal to some city folks, but you know everybody could see she was tracking bullshit in from the barn. I mean, that thing was just a hot mess, and it went on and on and on. Did you watch? The whole thing. I got to ask you this, Jesse, because it was eight and a half minutes long. Oh, I couldn't look away. I'll say this, though. I watched the full thing and not a word of what she was saying made it into my consciousness. Only now playing you that as audio did I actually listen to anything she was saying because I found it hypnotic. I mean, to people who haven't seen it, and there are a few of them because this thing did blow up. It's like a Tim and Eric video. It's it's bizarre. She's struggling to to make her like should she look at the camera? Where should she look? She sort of looks like she's looking for help to somebody off screen. She has this really weird affect. Like it's really weird. The smirk. I don't know if she's trying to appear more human or relatable, but there's just something just otherworldly. Obviously she is. I mean, there's there's this whole weirdness about it because, you know, Kelly Leach has been uh, whipping folks up on the, out on the, um, the milk run circuit and really getting to a certain, a certain segment of the population that really, really responds to this. I mean, a lot of people, of course, have anxiety about jobs and the economy, et cetera, et cetera, that that's part of what they're going at. But they're, I mean, Let's not make any bones about it. This is a clear racist 
message. That's exactly what she's going at. But obviously, the communications people and the team have, they've done their polling numbers and they know she's not going to go anywhere unless she can, you know, make some inroads in the in the Toronto set in the urban environment. She's not going to, she doesn't have any chance unless she can uh, expand the tent. But there was no leadership there. That was the really striking thing. This was someone who was desperately trying to be something she's not, and everybody could see it. But I wanna, I'm also really concerned that we actually talk a little bit about what the hell is going on with, with this and with Chris Alexander and with Rebel Media and what these people are trying to do. It's one thing to laugh at an appallingly produced video. That was just a piece of junk. But these people are peddling something really dangerous, really dangerous, and it needs to be called out. It's not funny. And it's... Okay, yes, I agree. But what you've just presented, before you started talking about, about the rebel and, and this populist strain that's coming into Canada and this racist ideology, you sort of presented version one, I think the most reasonable surface level analysis of what that video was, which is essentially when humanizing your candidate goes wrong, you mm-hmm. know, an attempt to soften Kelly Leach for uh, urban elites or people who are not going to respond to the rabble rousing of the uh, overtly fascistic message. Okay. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, like, yeah. And, and, and we can laugh because it went so horribly wrong. I'm going to suggest that there might be something else happening here. Okay. Because whatever... Kelly Leach's deficiencies in terms of lack of charisma and inability to speak like a human being and whatever problems with the people around her I might have with their ideologies, they're not all idiots. And I I cannot conceive of grown adults watching this bizarre video, which really Mm. like pause this podcast and watch this video Mm -hmm. if you haven't yet. I cannot conceive of people, professionals, producing that video and releasing it thinking that they were doing something that was going to help their candidate and not elicit this mockery that, is, that has happened. So what's your theory? <laughs> Here's my theory, okay? And if you look even at the, at the thumbnail that they chose for the YouTube version of it, it's like one of those when you're going through video and you stop when you're trying to make somebody look really bad and they're like <laughs> in between expressions. They look, that's what they chose for their own candidate. So this is out of the Trump playbook and people are going to call me a conspiracy nut, but this is not that sophisticated. And it goes like this. If you can present your candidate in some sort of a viral meme, which elicits mockery and ridicule from people who already don't like your candidate, and they're making fun of the way your candidate talks or the way your candidate looks, as opposed to engaging with the ideas of the candidate, then you essentially have gained the higher ground. Because now you can say, you silly people think the Canadians want to talk about Kelly Leach and the way she talks and whether she's wearing the right kind of clothes or whether the video looks slick or not. We want to talk about the ideas. And what you've been able to do is kind of judo flip things where you, you've avoided actually talking about the ideas because no one's actually talking about the atrocious ideas in that video. They're talking about the surface level aesthetics and you could pretend that you're the one who's about substance and ideology. If you're Kelly Leach's campaign people, O'Leary is now beating her in the polls. Her moment is on the wane. Your biggest problem is that no one's talking about Kelly Leach. And this video solved that. So is it that outlandish for me to suggest that this was deliberate? Yeah. (laughs) 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 Who wants their candidate to look that bad? Since when is being a laughingstock the pathway to success? But 
on the assumption that your very specious theory is correct, I <laughs> I do want to talk about what this what the messaging is here, and I want to okay. talk. I want to go back to our, the last election when the Conservatives ran the most racist campaign in Canadian history. That it was an overtly racist, Islamophobic. Uh, campaign, and they were looking to make political hay out of it. And I just want to talk about terror and terrorism, because at least eight Muslim women during that campaign, including a pregnant mother who was on her way to pick up her child at school, and women with children, were attacked during the Canadian during the last election. They were wearing the hijab, or they were wearing the niqab. Uh, they were wearing something that identified them as Muslim, and they were attacked in the streets, or be set upon in the streets. The pregnant mother was knocked to the ground by boys in Montreal. This happened all across the country because of the fever that was whipped up by this bunch. And yes. while Kelly Leach and Chris Alexander were whipping up hysteria about terrorism... 27 women were murdered. So you want to talk about terror, conservatives, and barbaric cultural practices? It's a barbaric cultural practice to isolate and vilify one particular group while this kind of mayhem is going on. All right. I feel like I need to make a couple of distinctions because you made a lot of points there and they're different points and, and I don't want anyone to get confused. I think the first thing you were saying is it has to do with the human cost of giving people permission to be racist. And we saw that happen during the last election campaign. But you very quickly moved on to violence against women, which I think is a different argument that you're making, if, if, if I have you right. I don't think you're saying that the emphasis on uh, this Islamophobic campaign caused the violence against women. No, no, this, of course The same not. way that there's a causal relationship between the first kind of incident, but that that, that is a kind of terror that was going ignored while a yes. rather phantom fictional kind of terror was being focused on it. Am, am I representing what yeah, you said? Yeah, and, and the sheer hypocrisy of pretending that you know, we enlightened Canadians, aka white Canadians, you know, where we were, that's what we're really going with this, the enlightened Western culture, you know, we don't engage in, in violence against women, which we abhor from these other groups that are trying to immigrate here. I mean, it, it, the nonsense on stilts of all of this stuff just drives me up the wall. And the pretending the the whole business around terror and terrorism the boogeyman yeah the boo radleyism of terrorism it just is ridiculous do you know what really upsets me sandy while we're talking about this stuff is i mean you you know turning the clock back to that last campaign whipping up that islamophobic sentiment was whatever else it was a failure. It was disastrous. It was mm -hmm. disastrous for the conservatives. It was disastrous for the people targeted. It was disastrous for Stephen Harper. And as a sovereign nation with its own supposed political discourse, it was widely recognized that that is not going to be how the conservatives maintain power or gain mm -hmm. a majority. That was scorched earth for the conservatives after that campaign. And mm -hmm. conservatism in Canada had to figure out a new tune. Now, with Trump beating that same drum exactly. successfully, we are now revisiting those ideas here. And the abdication of our own common sense, our own discourse, our own morality, just by sheer force of this American phenomenon is upsetting to me. It's ups and and it, it really speaks to kind of essential issues of Canadianness. Like, do we actually have 
agency and autonomy to reject ideas, to evolve on our own path, or are we just totally subservient to whatever is in vogue in the States? And Leach and Chris Alexander are mainstreaming the rebel and its ideas because that is basically hitching your wagon to a promotional engine. You know, it's like anything else. If it's big in the States, it'll probably play well in Canada. The Rebel's building a, a really big political machine, more, more than it's any kind of a journalistic organization. I think it's a political organization at this point. Mm-hmm. So I, I share your concern about all these things, but like, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's really like forcing some questions on us and just who the hell we are and, and whether we, we get to choose that or somebody else gets to choose that for us. Exactly right. But do you not feel like... In some ways, the horse has left the barn here. I mean, Kelly Leach is stuck. This was her brand. She was going to go out with this. It was all playing pretty well around November. <laughs> but it's 2017 now. And I think that she's she's polling disastrous numbers. So it's- That's just because she's being supplanted by a better Trump surrogate. And I want to talk now about Kevin O'Leary. You know, it's not that we've uh, moved past this moment where the Canadian Trump idea was hot for a second. And, uh, you know, no, we've just found somebody who can who can play the Canadian Trump a little bit more effectively. We had a story uh, recently about Kevin O'Leary where, you know, he had to give up all of his pundit paid punditry gigs, uh, which is the tradition and I think is in compliance with Elections Canada law. When you become a candidate, you can't also be paid to be on TV. But of course, Kevin O'Leary is still paid to be TV. We learned this. We confirmed this with CNBC. He's paid to be a pundit on American News. And that channel is in Canadian homes. It was pointed out to us after we broke this by, by Charlie Angus, who just announced his candidacy for uh, NDP leader, that he he may still be breaking the rules. And um, it brings up other questions about Kevin O'Leary. So here he is. This is what he sounds like on CNBC. It's not like he's talking about only American issues. Hold on, Bubba Louie. Let me tell you the story with Canada, just in case we're guessing numbers. 38 states. We are the number one trading partner. Canadians are responsible for 9 million U.S. jobs. So this is a relationship that I don't think we're going to be messing around with too much. It's too big. So I know that we spent $3.2 billion getting screwed around by the Obama administration for eight and a half years. I want my dough back. I'm not happy about it. So there's Kevin O'Leary. And, you know, beyond the the technical question of whether he's breaking Elections Canada law and, uh, and our electioneering regulations here, there's also this other aspect to it. Because, of course, when Kevin O'Leary became a politician, everyone went through his old, all the like ridiculous nonsense he said as a TV personality, and he was quick to distance himself from it. He said, well, that was just great TV. This is real. And he was uh, basically setting up a framework where nothing he said in the past could be used against him. And whether people bought that or not, I don't know. But now he's sort of contradicted his own thesis because he's doing that paid punditry, saying outrageous things on cable news while he's running for conservative leader. Other news is coming out about him where he may be in violation of the rules again in using private jets. He was sort of boasting that he takes private jets to his campaign events. And then it was pointed out to him that he's probably breaking campaign rules there. And he said, well, no, I'm, I, 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 I only charge the campaign the same as commercial airfare rates. And then people were quick to point out, well, then you're donating thousands of dollars to your campaign, which counts as well. So you might be busting through limits there. Is this similar to the Leach thing of, of like, you know, in focusing on the aesthetics, are we handing over discussion of the ideas to the other side? When people focus on O'Leary possibly breaking antitrust rules or breaking Elections Canada campaigning rules, is that foolish? Like, should we be like learning from what happened in the States and just like dealing with this on an ideological level as opposed to all of the egregious ways that, that these these sort of uh, rogue candidates thumb their nose at convention or even regulation? 
Oh gosh. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. You know, there's the whole rule thing. There's the, there's the Trump zeitgeist thing. You know, I still, I have a hard time believing that Kevin O'Leary actually really wants to be prime minister. All of this. Me too. But that was what we said. Everybody said about Trump. Everybody thought Trump was, if, if he won, he would, you know, he was never going to win. If he won, he just, he would just, you know, not take Remember Howard Stern famously said that, that Trump's whole campaign had been kind of a gag to try and up his brand so to leverage him into a better relationship with NBC. And then look what happened. And he might've been right. That, you know, it might've been a joke that went too yeah. far. I mean, I, I still don't feel like that's being discredited. But, I don't think we're going to be quite as much suckers. First of all, I just don't. Kevin O'Leary, yeah, he's a pundit, he's a personality, but he is not. You know, I said that I've said this before. He's not a global media star, which Trump had made himself into be. But there's also this weirdness that we have around what is it around with business people? It's like wealth is. You know, it operates in the media almost the same as pornography does. Like people cannot stop looking away from wealth. But look at O'Leary's numbers. You know, I was just looking at his, his O'Leary fund that he says, you know, I'm putting my own dollars in this because I haven't found any anything better. Well, he underperformed the uh, S&P by like several percent. And most of the other index funds have outperformed his fund by like five, six, seven percent. Yeah, no, we talked about this last time you're here. I mean, it, it, but again, similarly to Trump, he's not really a successful businessman. He just plays one on TV. He had one mammoth deal that was disastrous. Wait, 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 wait. He's a little bit better than that because the whole thing about his fund isn't about how successful it is. It's about how successful it is at suckering people to buy it. <laughs> and he uses his personality and his branding on TV. You know, he only gets paid like about $30,000, $35,000 an episode on that Shark Tank show, but it's worth way more to him. The fees on his fund, which he promotes by being Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Brand Guy, the fees on that fund are like $23 million a year. That's where the oh, juice is. Oh, no question. If, if they flipped it and said, now you've got to pay us 35000 an episode, he'd, he'd pay it he'd, he'd pay to be on that show. But my point is, do you really think Kevin O'Leary is going to give up $23 million a year to be Prime Minister of Canada and live in Ottawa? <laughs> like I don't, I, I don't think he. I don't think this is actually real. And he's kind of inviting everybody to not make it real by not going to be on any of these debates. I don't know. We'll see. Listen, our our editor uh, Jonathan Goldsby was at the Manning Conference, conservative conference in Ottawa, and he saw something. You know, he used to cover Rob Ford, mm -hmm. and he was mentioning to me that when O'Leary was just sort of like working the crowd. It was something that Jonathan hadn't witnessed since Rob Ford. He was swarmed by rank-and-file conservatives who were policy-wise not on board with O'Leary, but starstruck mm -hmm. and fawning over him. And the truth is, if I were a conservative and I wanted to have somebody in opposition for the next couple of years making Trudeau's life hell, as O'Leary has promised to, O'Leary seems to be the right person because O'Leary can fight Justin's star power with his star power. He's the right guy to get, get headlines. Anybody else, you kind of think of them lobbing grenades at Trudeau and trying to get Trudeau off message and you can't see it working that well. So I, I could see why he's a strong candidate. I could see why, I mean, you know, when we talk about this wave of populism and this kind and this wave of, of reality TV optics and nothing would be better for his brand. I agree this is brand building, but if he was the leader of the opposition or prime minister, that's pretty good for his brand too. Well, and as Trump has shown, you don't have to give up your business interests to, to, to be. Uh, well, <laughs> well, not leader. in the United States. I think 
speaking in Canada, I don't think there's any question at all that the pressure would immediately start coming on him to divest. And I just, I don't, I don't think he's going to divest. I, why would he? But what you're really pointing to, and I think this is actually maybe almost the most important thing, quite apart from the fact that we just cannot stop looking at people who can pretend to be rich. The other thing is the power of the media. You know, that's something that I've only recently kind of really understood is just how incredibly powerful that media thing is. And just look at the contrast between Kelly Leach and Kevin O'Leary. You know, for all the faults of Kelly Leach, she knows about government. She knows about whether you agree with her or not. She has a deep, deep knowledge of how government functions and healthcare and, and whatnot, and a number of things that she does have some degree of expertise in. Kevin O'Leary has none of that, but he's a star. Look at look at last night at Donald Trump's really actually pretty awful speech, but the media love it, and they're perfectly willing to to overlook the fact that the day before, or in fact the same day as the speech, he was sort of blaming the Jews for all the anti-Semitic activity in the states and wondering if they, maybe the Jews were trying to pull something. This is how powerful media is. That all you have to do is like put on a suit and act like the big dog and. You can pull it off. Sandy, this is the time on our program where we take a moment to duly note some things that we feel need to be duly noted. I have a couple. I'd like to begin by duly noting uh, my own deficiencies. So we had an episode last week, Sandy, where a conservative uh, cartoonist, columnist, J.G. McCullough was on the show. We had a very robust uh, response to this episode. And I have to say a lot of people loved it, but that's neither here nor there. There are a lot of people who were very upset and angry about the show and had a lot of criticism. And uh, I want to just like note that criticism. I think it fell into basically two main points. The first point was that J.J. made a, a number of factually incorrect statements about people claiming refugee status in Canada. He had this whole theory about criminal Somalis that was kind of riddled with bad facts. And while I I think every time they came up said, I'm pretty sure that's not right, man. I pretty, I'm pretty sure that's not true. I didn't have the correct facts at my fingertips. I think critics of the show on that basis are absolutely right. And letting bad information stand is a problem. It's not something that we want to do here, which is why we're, we're, we have a piece up on the site now that just is from a immigration lawyer going through all of the information that JJ presented. So it's not like he wasn't challenged on the show, but he wasn't corrected. And that's just about me doing my job better or worse. And when somebody says that one plus one equals three, I would rather say, no, it equals two than say, I'm pretty sure you're not right about that. So I fell a little bit short there. The other criticism though was that JJ is so toxic and he's so racist. People were saying that I shouldn't even have him on the show, that it's irresponsible to give somebody like that a forum. On that point, I just want to note, I respect that opinion. I respect that position. I understand it, but I don't agree with it. And I think that we saw in the States what happens when the Breitbarts of the world and the Infowars are so wrong and so insidious that they're beneath the contempt of other media and they get ignored. This idea that ignoring them is going to make them go away and this idea that it's all about, oh, do you give them a platform or not? These other voices have a platform. They have plenty of platforms. There's no shortage of platforms. And I want to engage with those ideas. I had Ezra Levant on my show. I think he's a bigot. I had JJ on. I don't think that he said anything that places him in that category. JJ's ideas are out there. Uh, CNN, Washington Post, CTV. He's part of the discourse and I would rather talk to him and challenge those ideas and do that in a fair way, then ignore 
him. But I think I need to be clearer about where I put each guest and I need to come with my facts a bit straighter. And I just wanted to note that. Duly noted. What do you have, Sandy? (laughs) I'm looking at, I don't know how many people saw that the New York Times has got this big push on and like everybody... Everybody's just loving, you know, the New York Times, the truth matters, and and, and you and so you need to subscribe to us. And all of that is wonderful. I'm really glad to see that that the idea is getting pushed out there, that subscription is going to be an essential part of journalism and media. And you have subscribers. Mm-hmm. We at the National Observer have subscribers. I like that enormously. But I also think, New York Times, that the truth mattered during the election campaign, too. And the New York Times failed horribly. And now they're on this big subscription campaign because of the results of their failure. And the two things that really stand out in my mind were the October 28th, their coverage of the Comey letter and how that got blown. Yes, the Republicans blew that all up. But print media, and in particular, of all print media, the New York Times is the most influential voice in journalism. TV follows it. Everything follows how they treat a story. And how they treated the Comey email story on Clinton was a disaster. But it was followed three days later with their headline story investigating Donald Trump. The FBI sees no clear link to Russia. And publishing that story, and at the time they published it, and their, and their public editor has, has written about this, that at the time they published it, they did know about the now infamous Christopher Steele dossier. They knew that a highly respected former MI6 agent um, had compiled this dossier, and that the FBI and other intelligence agencies had sought and, and obtained a foreign intelligence surveillance application, that's a FISA warrant, and that this this issue of Trump and Russia went much, much deeper, and they were, they allowed themselves to be used, probably by certain elements in the in the FBI, to put out a whitewash on Trump. And so I have a big problem with the New York Times now seeking its subscription. And I canceled my subscription. I was a subscriber, and because once that came, that information came out about the fact that they knew that there was more to the Trump-Russia story when they published a story that said there was no big deal about it, that's when I canceled. So I got a big problem with the New York Times now saying the truth matters because it mattered then too. But on that note, subscribers are good (laughs) and subscription is important to journalism. So maybe there's a good message there. Duly fucking noted. I, I want to note this atrocious thing that happened to the Toronto Sun. The Toronto Sun fell for this hoax story that's been around for months about uh, supposedly people being paid to protest Donald Trump. This story was discredited. There's there's no truth to it. Uh, it's from November. But a Toronto Sun sports reporter, Kurt Larson, filed a story that was published by the Sun. It just repeated this false, this fake news story, sorry, from whole cloth. And, you know, they, they scrubbed it from their website. It took them hours later, like uh, there's some CMS problem and then it disappeared from their mobile site as well. No correction. We, we reached out to Adrian Batra, the editor in chief. We reached out to the reporter, no comment from the people involved, like they just pretending that it never happened. I'm duly noting it, not just to flag their deficiency there, but also to point out, like we are seeing the results 
of a broken news system in this country. Whatever else happened there, a lot of people knew that story was false. If there had been a rigorous editorial process or any kind of editorial process where some other eyeballs were on that, it never would have made it to print. But it ran, and it, I, you know, I don't know how far it went, and I don't know how many people now believe it to be true. We're seeing what happens when post media is hobbled to the level that it is now. We've got a sports reporter filing old internet memes that that have been debunked. Paul Godfrey said that his papers are not yet unacceptable. The Toronto Sun, in that instance, was unacceptable. It's a tough world out there right now for media. It's a tough world. <laughs> Sandy, I'm going to thank our sponsor for this episode, Camp Tech, who are making it a little less tough for this media organization this week. Camp Tech are, of course, the people who provide computer workshops for grownups. If you want to learn how to do a lot of stuff that you probably should know how to do, or that would be really powerful to know how to do, you don't have to go to like night school for a month, take a long, you can go like do a half day workshop, a one day workshop. They have these in Toronto, Vancouver, and Ottawa. And these are like very social events. Uh, I know a lot of people who, do, who teach these courses. They're in cool spaces. They're good networking events. And you just do hands-on workshops where you learn about things like Google Analytics, online retail, Facebook ads, Photoshop. And now you can learn about podcasting. And I know some of the people, the guy who's teaching this is a fantastic podcast producer. A lot of people want to make podcasts. And the good news for us pros is that a lot of people who try don't know the basics. And so their stuff just doesn't sound right. The bad news for us is it's not that hard to learn. And I'm a little bit afraid of Camp Tech teaching everybody out there how to make podcasts because it's going to get more competitive. I, I asked Avery Swartz if she's trying to put me out of business and here's what she said. Oh, podcasting. Podcasting is so popular. It's one of our most popular workshops that we have at Camp Tech. We're running it in our Toronto and our Ottawa location. We're doing our podcasting workshop about every four to six weeks. And every time we run it, it sells out. Everybody wants to learn how to create a podcast. And we've got a workshop that teaches you how in just one day. That's really the purpose of the company, Jesse, is to encroach on your territory and take you down. Go check out Camp Tech, camptech.ca. Okay, Sandy, finally today, this Joseph Boyden scandal has taken a, a new turn with allegations. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. Uh, APTN avoided the P word, but if you look at the comparisons, it's plagiarism. The story by Ron Gaychuk and the story by Joseph Boyden are just too similar to escape that classification. The real question here is, is the question of oral stories and who owns them and who doesn't. You know, it was recently quoted that I said nobody owns oral stories, and that's a misquote. And I think this is the way people are trying to paint me right now, some people anyways, and it couldn't be anything further from the truth. My stories are like my children. And they are my creations. I'm the same person I was uh, before what I think and want to call a manufactured drama began. The sheer amount of energy and time and focus and unhappiness and anger directed at me has been a little bit astounding. So, Sandy, I, I wanted to kind of point out a few things about Joseph Boyden's defense there. I mean, like, the first thing is, like, when you're talking about stealing an Indigenous story saying that your stories are like your children is a really bad analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, don't, I, I think that's a really unfortunate analogy. I, I feel like the guy just, 
you know, Wab Canoe has given him outs, you know, just admit what you did, come clean, there's still a place for you in this community. He's been given opportunity after mm-hmm. opportunity to really account for, in terms of his identity, in terms of his stories, where he might have gone wrong or something that he thought was true about himself got exaggerated. And he just keeps clinging to this self-pity. And now he's throwing around these insinuations that certain people are manufacturing drama to attack him. And, you know, where's Jorge Barrera, the investigator for APTN? Like when I did the Gameshi story, I got interview requests from the media. When Kevin Donovan and Robin Doolittle were on their Ford story, you would hear them talking about their investigation all over the media. When Joseph Boyden is exposed by Jorge Barrera, I don't see Jorge getting asked to be on these different shows talking about it. I don't know where he is. And, and I, I, I see Joseph Boyden in The Globe and in CBC giving these, plat- giving these platforms to defend himself. So there's a lot that that just rang a little bit uh, off key to me. But the main thing for me, he says that a journalist misquoted him. It was it was Deborah Dundas of the Toronto Star who wrote a feature with him, a very fair feature where he he says nobody owns an oral story. And here he is representing, you know, indigenous oral culture and saying, you know, look, this is like the folk tradition, nobody owns a story. I can take an oral story and and turn it into a piece of literature. It wasn't this guy, Ron Gaychix. He probably got it from the same place I got it from. Nobody owns a story. And that was quickly refuted by anyone who knows anything about indigenous culture. And again, there was this this offense taken by a lot of people. Like, again, here's Boyden telling Canada what indigenous storytelling culture is, and he's getting it wrong. So we heard him on CBC saying, I never said that I was misquoted. And in doing so, he's calling into question the credibility of this Toronto Star reporter and editor, Deborah Dundas. Well, Deborah Dundas checked her tape and she says, I went back to my notes. I went back to my tape. That's what he said. He said, nobody owns an oral story. So now we have Boyden, like when it comes to this plagiarism question, the writer that he supposedly lifted it from is dead. This other guy who he lifted a name from is dead. We can't really check Boyden's story because even though people around those people say that it doesn't smell right to them. This whole thing, Boyden's version of it doesn't sound right. Now here's a fact that I think was more than simply misrepresented. And, and it was at a cost. You know, he's, he's, he's damaging the reputation of a reporter whose job is to report accurately. And, and now we know. Like, there's proof that he, he did say that. And I just want to know, like, how many more chances, you know, there's, oh, it's a gray area with Boyden. Nobody wants to come out definitively. Where does this end? I mean, he's, he's, he's speaking on a writer's panel in a few days here in Toronto. I- you know, this this whole issue I have so much trouble with. First of all, you know, I come from white settler culture and, you know, that's the dominant culture. It's almost impossible to, we just have to really, really listen to everything that the people in the Indigenous communities, where these stories came from, what they have to say. I'm still kind of troubled by this I, you know I and I looked at the I looked at the passages I have some questions about was this an oral story you know the suggestion seems to be it could only have come from Geishik that it did not exist anywhere else as an oral story that I think is a different thing than the question of well, there's nobody owns oral stories. I mean, clearly, anytime there's an appropriation or any use of indigenous culture, that's an issue. And I and I wish we would kind of stay there. There does seem to be an effort to to cast Boyden as 
you only plagiarize. The only possible conclusion that anyone can draw is that you plagiarized from this writer, this Indigenous source. And I think that's a different issue from the issue of nobody owns oral stories or these are Indigenous stories and this is this is their cultural property, I suppose, or this is their culture and, and there shouldn't be any appropriation by people who are not of the culture. I mean, th- this is all now clouded by Boyden's own identity and the questions surrounding surrounding it. I hear you completely, Sandy, and, and I feel like the thing to do is to listen. And, and I guess that's where my frustration comes from. Like, I really don't feel like any of the analysis or commentary coming from from wh- whatever you want to call it, settler media, the mainstream media, or this program should be about like damning Boyden or, or ruling on this question of plagiarism or not. I mean, there, we can talk about the facts and I know that he's gotten one wrong, but to this question of listening, I'm not hearing any voices from those communities who are corroborating anything he's saying to exonerate himself or exculpate himself. So it really comes down to the same question that, that started this whole thing, which is who gets to speak for indigenous Canadians and their culture and their ways and their traditions. Boyden is relying on his conception. He's selling us a conception of how things work with the culture and with stories. And if we buy into his idea of it, then he can kind of get off the hook. But if all of the people involved, the brother of the guy whose name he took, people around Ron Gaychik, who is the storyteller themselves, if everybody is saying he's got his facts wrong, that, you know, on on a cultural level of his understanding of, of us, he he's representing people that we knew in a way that doesn't jive with our understanding of those people. Nothing he's saying represents our reality. It is a question of listening. Do we listen to them? Mm-hmm. And I just keep hearing his voice and his defenders' voices. I guess that's really the point that I make. I want to make is is not like when is it enough and we're going to get rid of Boyden, but when the hell are we going to actually listen to the people who who this is really about? And a little bit more to that point, that Ron Gaychik, as a writer and as a storyteller and indigenous culture, how about we uh, celebrate and promote promote those people so that these stories are more familiar from the authentic voice and the culture that that they emerge from. That's a great point. You know what, John Kay, I know you're listening to this. Why don't you exert that story from Ron Gaychik and re- reprint that in The Walrus? You know, like, why don't we use this opportunity for something like that? You know, if we're actually interested in the work itself, let's read the, the work. Sandy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jesse. And and uh, forgive me if I if I couldn't be funny enough about Kelly Leach. I don't find any of this funny. I find it all really disturbing. But you don't have to be funny when you're fiery. I love having you on this show. Uh, everybody, you can email me anytime. I'm Jesse at CanadaLandShow.com, and we're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Sandy, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Garasino and uh, Anna, you can read my op-eds in the National Observer. Our website is canadalandshow.com where you can see a lot of the stuff we were talking about. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode is produced by Russell Gregg, who will be joining me. If you're listening to this uh, on Thursday or on Friday, March the 3rd, Russell and I, Tim Bousquet, and Tara Tyre will be talking about Atlantic Media, Is It Fucked?, that is Friday, March 3rd at the Marquee Ballroom, 6 p.m. Tickets are 10 bucks at the door. If you like what we do, please support us.